Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we'll be diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 11, Mystery Spot. Let's get this show on the road. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who... Have we done this already? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like deja vu. <laughs> if you say deja vu one more time. <laughs> Sorry, I knew we were getting to this episode. As I've said before, it's one of the few I remember from my original watch through, and I remember loving it. I forget how traumatic the end of it was, clearly, but I remember how fun the beginning was. From the time we started this show, I knew we'd get to this episode and I'd have to re-record the intro after the intro. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the ending is traumatic when you're seriously watching the show. Because if you're just lightly or very casually watching the show, it's like, oh, the trickster tried to teach Sam a lesson. And then when you're actually watching the show, it's like, oh my god, the trickster inflicted a lifetime of trauma on Sam in one episode. It was said very well during our live watch of the show. It feels like two distinctly different episodes. And just seeing what Sam could become in this potential future, wasn't ready for it. Are you ready for the recap, though? That I'm ready for, if you'll count me down. Three, two, one, go. The brothers show up in a small town. They talk about the cult for like a split second and Bella, but don't really get into it. They decide to go look for this person who went missing at some sort of like hoiky, cheeky, mystery shack side of the road type spot called the mystery spot. And then Dean dies and Sam wakes up and Dean dies and Sam wakes up. You see where I'm going with this. Sam is stuck in a time loop where Dean continues to die over and over again. And he's been at this for so long and he eventually finds something wrong with this whole loop and catches the trickster who eventually they do end up getting to let him out of the loop. But then Dean dies again and Sam doesn't wake up. And then it's really traumatic to see Sam have to deal with up to six. I think he says six months of no Dean. And then he kills Bobby to try to bring Dean back because he thinks it might be the trickster. And then the trickster ultimately does pity him and like reset everything. But like, holy crap. This was an episode. Shall we jump into the long game right away? Because I have some comments about all of it. I'm intrigued. I feel like this episode is going to have a lot of little things I want to know about. Well, first, do you remember when I told you earlier this season that we'd see Dean die a lot very soon? You weren't wrong. This was it. I also want to mention that Sam's very first reaction when Dean gets shot the first time is to yell, call 911. And the girls that get it, get it. And the girls that don't, don't. I'll let you leave it at that. If you wanted to add another check mark on the list of things that make us think that Dean is a sub, I've got this line for you. Oh, I figured this would happen. Sammy, you know I get all tingly when you take control like that. We've already had some hints at this. Dean is very good at painting the word picture. I want to talk briefly about the exchange between Sam and the trickster when Sam says, so this is fun for you, killing Dean over and over again. And the trickster replies, one, yes, it is fun. And two... This is not about killing Dean. This joke is on you, Sam. Watching your brother die every day forever. And again, this is a line that when I transpose it to season 15, it just, it gives me chills and not really in a good way. 
I hope to remember to think of that line when we get to season 15. Oh, we will. (laughs) I am making notes of this. (laughs) Now, the last thing isn't typically something that I would include in the long game, but let's call it like the meta long game for a second, okay? So there's a joke about Sam's story sounding absolutely crazy and Dean saying like, dingo ate my baby crazy. I was hoping we touched on this. This is in reference to Azaria Chamberlain in Australia in 1980. She was a nine-week-old baby girl, about so that's about two months old, who died on a camping trip with her parents. They claimed that she was taken from the tent by a dingo, which is basically a wild Australian dog. The media and the public really didn't believe it, and the phrase, a dingo ate my baby, or a dingo took my baby, basically became a pop culture reference to talk about something sounding completely unbelievable. So her parents were tried and convicted for her murder. Like, it was a whole big thing. And here's the meta long game part. This episode of Supernatural was filmed in 2008, when the belief was still that the Chamberlains had killed their daughter and made up the whole dingo story to cover their tracks. But in 2012, the Australian courts recognized that they'd made a mistake and ruled that Azaria did in fact die from a dingo attack. So the Chamberlains were right in their unbelievable claim, and so was Sam. To use that in this episode in this way and then have it kind of come to fruition years later, that's like a cosmic irony that is just so perfect. You can't write that shit. Watching Supernatural is an unparalleled experience and it seems that it's unparalleled like now just as it was back then. Like nothing can ever be this. You can never watch another show and have it be like as meta as this one. You can't make this stuff up. You really can't. Shall we head to story time? Can you start by walking me through your feelings during the absolutely chaotic transition from Dean dying of a shotgun wound to the title slide to Sam waking up to heat of the moment again and seeing Dean totally oblivious? What a way to start an episode. I like when a show really gets going, and I think it tells something about the story and kind of the chaotic nature the story is going to have. It really acts as a great start to this insane roller coaster Sam's about to ride. Even knowing it was coming, there is a part of you that is just like shook by the scene, and then the sudden transition to like heat of the moment, and Dean just like, I'm ready to go. Let's get breakfast, brush our teeth. You're watching Sam try to process it, You feel Sam in that scene so well. I remember watching this five, 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 six years ago now, and just being in complete shock when he wakes up again. Like, just, I could not believe my eyes. Basically, just like Sam. I was in kind of the same headspace, actually. What is happening? You know, like, he gets very, like, he starts wondering what's happening. He gets very, like, confused and sassy at the same time. Confused, sassy Sam is my favorite Sam. It didn't occur to me at the time of watching it, but looking back now, it does a really good job of pulling you into Sam's point of view in this episode. Like, it makes it very clear this is a Sam episode, but it also does a really good job of, like, putting you in his shoes. I feel like a lot of Sam episodes kind of use the fact that it's a Sam episode to dunk on Dean. And as much as this sort of did that, it didn't do it as much or it didn't do it, like, as terribly as it would usually have. They dunked on Dean in terms of like how difficult he must be to live with, which, you know, fully on board with that. 
But at the same time, they didn't make him misogynistic. They didn't make him like overly aggressive. You know, they didn't go into like the really, like the the really terrible stuff that they sometimes do to Dean. Yeah, it rides a very fine line between the like sarcastic, funny Dean, but not the like jerk Dean. And even when he doesn't understand, that's kind of the whole bit, right? He can't understand what's happening. And yet he's still there for his brother. You know, he's like, oh, this this sounds absolutely crazy, but I'm going to I'm going to trust you. Let's go along with it. And so I again, I really appreciate this this decision, this writing decision. Now, can you walk me through your feelings <laughs> again when Dean gets run over by the car only for Sam to wake up to heat of the moment again and seeing Dean totally oblivious? <laughs> the jarringness of it, that it is so immediate, it is so sudden. And again, it's that really good putting you in Sam's shoes. He doesn't have a moment to process it. He literally sees it happen, looks down, and then is awake in bed to the damn song again. You are you are now, again with Sam, further frustrated by the scenario, further confused. At least now he's convinced it's not just deja vu, it's actually a loop. And now he is racing through the, what do I do now? And you as a viewer are in that same boat again. You, what is going on? You now are in problem-solving mode. You are trying to solve the puzzle as much as Sam is. It's kind of like the piecing together of those things. Again, like I find that this is really brilliant storytelling because at this point, we're about 10 minutes into the episode and Dean has died twice already. I think that the genius of this episode is that like, yes, we're shaken, but we're also not sad about it yet. True, the quickness does have that effect. Exactly. So like we know that something's happening, but because it can be undone, we have like that, that trust that it'll end well, right? There's hope, that belief that, oh, you know, Dean is going to survive this episode. I really think it's because of how at home both actors are in their respective comedy roles, in part at, at the very least. I mean, I think that Jared and Jensen are both at their best in this segment of the episode. We're used to seeing Sam always understand what's going on. He's our holder of knowledge. He's dignified. He's calm. And here he's just completely losing his mind. He doesn't know what's going on. He's really out of his depth. So we're getting some of that, like, I lost my shoe kind of comedy that we felt, you know, fit Sam so well. The constant Dean dying and Sam trying to figure it out. It's just seeing the different stages of planning he goes through where he's like very meticulous trying to figure things out. And then there is the, you know, I'm just going to go chop down the mystery spot. He's burnt it down apparently. <laughs> and then true. we, and again, it's we're true. also able to have these moments where though it is done off camera, which I think even adds to it where Sam accidentally kills Dean with an ax and it's played for jokes. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's really funny. <laughs> now the episode has built us to a point where Dean dying can be funny because we know there's no consequence. Exactly. You know, something that's interesting is that during our live watch, one of the one one of our patrons was saying sarcastically, oh, Dean died. It's so funny. Ha ha ha. And, and like, they're so right, though, because we're laughing at Dean's death, which is something that we never we would never have thought we would do before this episode. I was the entire time, like, yelling at Dean to pet the damn dog. And then he pets the dog and gets killed. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. I messed up. Another reason why Dean doesn't like dogs. <laughs> well, speaking of Dean, just to kind of, like, come back to our comedy conversation, we're used to seeing him 
also in charge of situations, always in control, and to see him so blissfully unaware this episode was definitely a change of tone from what we're used to. Although we do see Dean being a bumbling idiot in other episodes, uh, especially those Sam-centered episodes, but it's usually to contrast with Sam and basically to make Sam look better and to make Dean look worse. But here, bumbling Dean is really used to contrast with bumbling Sam. I love that dynamic. I find that it works so well. It puts them on equal footing, which is something that the show has rarely done up until now. It doesn't really feel like either one has control. You have Sam who knows what's happening but can't solve it, which really takes him out of his element. And then you have Dean who just doesn't realize something is wrong. And Dean is usually the one to figure out that there's a problem a little little sooner. Like Dean figures out there's a problem, Sam solves it. Here we have Dean can't figure out there's a problem and Sam can't solve it. There you go. Ah, Because again, this is something that we discussed during our live watch, but this episode feels like two separate episodes, like you said earlier. There's the very first episode where, you know, it's fun. It's fun in games and Dean comes back and then there's this other half that's very difficult to watch, very traumatic, etc. So let's put a pin in that just for a second, because there's one last thing that I kind of want to look at in the, the funny part of the episode, the time loop. Analyzing this episode, I'm finding really challenging, really hard, because there's so much and I want to talk about everything. And obviously we can't talk about everything. We could spend an entire season just talking about this one episode. I need to mention the absolute poetry of Dean's fourth death being choking on sausage. And remember, this is the trickster who gives people their just desserts. There's a pun in there somewhere that I'm not going to make, but you all know where I'm going with this one. I think that's the pun. I think this is as textual as we get. (laughs) He chokes on sausage. Yep. And tacos aren't much better either. He has trouble with those too, it turns out. There you go. Apparently, apparently tacos and sausages are things that Dean usually enjoys and that kill him in this particular episode. So again, do we need to say it? (laughs) Shall we switch gears and go to the second half of this episode that's way more traumatic? (laughs) I'm like, "Mm, yeah, but no, I don't want to. (laughs) Neither of us want to, but we have to. Exactly. So we get a glimpse of what Sam's post-Dean life would look like. And it's basically like nothing matters to him anymore. And all that matters is getting Dean back. There's a lot of talk in the fandom about like the quote-unquote bro dependency between Sam and Dean. And this is a perfect example, in my opinion. One thing that came out during our, our conversation in the live watch was that this is probably the first time that we see Sam really clinging to Dean because we had seen Dean cling to Sam in previous episodes. I mean, he did sell his soul to save his life, but here this is the first time that we're seeing Sam like really engage in that dynamic. And the trickster notices this, right? When he says, whoever said that Dean was the dysfunctional one has never seen you with a sharp object in your hands. And I feel like you and I talk often about Dean's issues, but I think that we forget that Sam is also a ticking time bomb. I think Sam hides it better, but I also think that has to come from his reliance on Dean to kind of be the other half. So not having Dean to check him allows him to become this thing we see in this end of episode. That's so interesting. I just had a thought. 
we say that Dean is dysfunctional. The reason why people say that is because his coping mechanisms aren't very heavy, quote, healthy. It's food, it's uh, alcohol, it's sex. But how does Sam cope? How does Sam let off steam? Like, where is his, like, release mechanism? I feel like we've only ever had two instances where he's needed to, and they were both drinking, which, I mean, for Sam is like half a scotch, and, well, he's done. And then I get sassy drunk Sam. Like he's so tall. His body is so huge. Like, how does half a scotch do this? It doesn't make sense to me. But I feel like this is now we're seeing Sam's attempts to cope. And his coping is to fix the problem. That's very John. But I mean, that's a thing you see. I mean, I think it's a very common trait and you hear about it. I will say I tend to hear it more from men. I've seen it on both sides of the gender spectrum than everything in between. But there is this innate want to fix something when someone tells you there's a problem or you see something that can be solved your want is to solve it so this is sam being very almost not accepting that dean is gone or clearly not accepting dean is gone he believes he can solve this problem and the solution is to find the trickster he's he's found his solution he says now now needs to enact it i kind of want to come back to one thing that you said which is he's only needed to cope twice i'm just going to like, if you don't mind, I'm just going to add a bit of nuance there. Yes, of course, we, we've seen him over drink twice, but I would disagree that he's only needed to cope twice. You know what I mean? Like, I think that he needs to cope, but he doesn't have a mechanism. And so, like, all of that pent-up energy went into, like, complete hyper-focus mode when he really needed to cope. You know, he, he look at the way he kept his motel room. That was his way of kind of like gaining back control, right? Everything was lined up. The bed was made. The food was clean. Like that, he probably left that motel room cleaner than what he found it. I mean, not hard to do, but I see what you mean. You're right. Sam, Sam needs to release some pressure. Hopefully he finds better ways than creepy serial killer murder mode, Sam. All right. So let's conclude this uh, story time with just like some food for thought for people who have watched the entire series, because this was my first time really rewatching this episode post-finale. I just want to highlight the fact that the trickster thought that the most cruel way to punish the brothers was to kill Dean meaninglessly and to have Sam go on living. Like, this was literally the most cruel way the trickster could imagine treating them. This is aimed at people who know a little more than I do, as in have seen the whole series. But even just from the narrative arc of this season, it's very on the nose. I mean, that is literally what this season is leading up to be, is the Dean is going to die at the end of this year countdown, and Sam will be left alone without him. And the trickster is just doing it sooner because he thinks it's a righteous punishment. Oh, the trickster. My goodness. I do love him still, though. Like, I mean, I don't agree with his methods, but like, damn, is he good. I mean, he's a great antagonist. Let's be clear, right? Like he is, he is an amazing antagonist. And I, you know, we're, 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 I'm not, hopefully I'm not spoiling this for you, but we are going to see him again. Like he's not. All I want is more of him. Like he is, I, I think it is so good when you can love a villain because of something about them that isn't just like, oh, they're just like a good looking villain or, oh, they're just a funny villain. But it was actually like a story or a narrative or something bigger than that to grab onto. And the trickster being this, what he 
thinks to be a force of good that he's having fun, but he's doing it in a right way from his point of view. Someone said it before. It's like, yeah, he only kills people who kind of deserve it or are kind of assholes. And like, I don't agree with that. But at the same time, you're not wrong. (laughs) Well, listen, this entire show, the premise of the show is basically like giving people their what's coming to them. And so I feel like this this character is so at home in this story because if if you don't like the trickster then really you don't like the show and but that's kind of how i see it because everything about this show is about people getting what's coming to them and the trickster just accelerates that so there's anyway like of course of course you can dislike him right but to me it doesn't make sense because it's that's what the show is about <laughs> Especially in the first few seasons. No, it is very emblematic of the show. You are very right. That's an amazing, amazing thought. Shall we hop into critical time? Yes, please. Okay, so I need to know who wrote this episode because everything about this episode was immaculate. So this episode was written by Jeremy Carver and Emily McLaughlin. Jeremy Carver wrote in this in this season... Sin City and A Very Supernatural Christmas, and Emily McLaughlin wrote with Eric Kripke, The Magnificent Seven. This is her last episode of Supernatural as a writer, but we will see Jeremy Carver quite a bit um, in upcoming seasons, and he is going to become a showrunner as well eventually. Last time, which would have been A Very Supernatural Christmas, I made the comment of how much I enjoyed that episode but didn't like Sin City. And I was looking forward to Carver's next episode because he is just getting better. Whatever he writes next will have to be better than this. That is the current trend he has set. And I don't know how we can do that, but I'm excited. But the two of them did an amazing job. And the director was Kim Manners, who in this season has directed The Magnificent Seven as well as Fresh Blood. So, Drew, do you have any uh, interesting lore for us this week? Yes and no. I wanted to talk about time travel, which isn't really a lore you can get into. Bear with me. Uh, I will have to, because as you know, I don't like time travel. So (laughs) as a narrative device. (laughs) We have to touch on that still at some point. (laughs) But I'm very excited to hear this lore segment. So let's go ahead. So that's today's lore segment, or rather trope segment. A retrospective on just why time travel can cause so many messes, but can be utilized to tell a story that otherwise may not be able to exist. So I've already explained clearly whether our focal character has chosen to travel in time or has been set out of time by some external force. We can know the possible outcomes based on the previously mentioned types of time travel. Uh, In some examples, we've given an issue the hero needs to fix in the past in order to resolve an issue in the future. Or they're in the past changing something that was set wrong by the antagonist and needs to be set back right in order to fix the future, thus righting a wrong. This all assumes that we are in a single timeline scenario, as time may involve alternate timelines and traveling back may only affect the one stream. Really, what I'm here today to present to you is that somewhat backwards lore segment is just how difficult it can be to write a proper time travel story, as time, timelines, time travel, and even time loops or, well, it was said best, kind of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. It may just be better to look at time travel not as a mechanic, but as a plot convenience that, ironically, can easily become an inconvenience when not used properly. 
I hope today that I'm able to sway you, my trusty listeners, to just be careful when it comes to getting into time travel writing stories. Writing a story about time travel really can set you back a few steps. And let's not even get started on whether or not this particular case is actually time travel or some sort of dream sequence. That's a trope for another day. Did you just do the lore segment backwards? Is that what happened? Oh my god, that was so good. I loved it. Oh, that was so hard to write, but I had so much fun. <laughs> this is so exciting. I think this might be like the first time that I actually enjoy any kind of like time loop, time travel thing. Uh, so I don't, I just, yeah, I'm going to have to eat my words. <laughs> And then ironically, my story about not using time travel as a plot mechanic somehow worked to solve a problem with time travel. I, if that isn't emblematic of time travel in its whole, I don't know what is. Would you have some critiques from this episode you'd like to share with us? The one thing that I'd really like to discuss critically is the one thing that I can't. Because it relates so closely to the series finale. So we won't do that today. We'll put that on hold. But I do have a few thoughts about Groundhog Day that I'd like to share with you. For our, our younger listeners, Groundhog Day is a classic movie from 1993 uh, starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell, which has basically now become like a classic and a pop culture reference, which everybody has heard. I mean, it was Dean's reference in this episode. The original script was purchased by Columbia Pictures and was written by Danny Rubin. The director, Harold Ramis, rewrote large chunks of it to make it funnier. Now, as a reminder, Ramis directed other movies starring Bill Murray, like Caddyshack and Ghostbusters, which are both referenced in Supernatural at different points. So that gives you an idea of his humor also. The thing is, the three men, Ruben, Ramis, and Murray, clashed completely over the tone of the movie. So Ruben wanted to make it sweet and sentimental, Ramis wanted to make it comedic and cynical, whereas Murray really wanted something more philosophical and contemplative. And the clash was mostly between Ramis and the two others, specifically Murray. Remember, they had worked together on hugely successful projects before, and it got so bad between them that they didn't speak after the filming of this movie for 21 years, just before Ramis died in 2014. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, because in future seasons, Supernatural is also going to be pulled in many, many opposite directions by the divisions within the writing team and the creative team. And I think that now is a good idea to start thinking about that. Oh, that worries me so much for the future of the show. I, I'm i not going to play that dumb. I know there has been some um, controversy between the creative writing and public opinion of the show. I'm not going to beat around that bush too much. I'll be very to the point. But I'm very, very intrigued to sort of see when that begins to happen and see if I can take it out myself. I would technically argue that that is already happening, especially with the queer coding of Dean. Because there are people, even at this time, there were, you know, there were people who were very invested in not clearly queer quoting him. And there were others who were putting in all these messages, like having him choke on sausage and eat bad tacos. It's there, but it couldn't be there completely. It couldn't be there in the text, so it remained in the subtext. And so we're starting to see those divisions within the creative team. And that kind of like trickles down to the audience. The supernatural fandom isn't divided. It's, 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 
it's fragmented, truly. Would you happen to have a personal reflection and a call to action this week for this episode? Kind of came in a really weird way. So I didn't really have one. So I started just sort of looking at what this episode spoke to me the most about. And it really has to do with Sam becoming this fish out of water. You know, we see a very different side of him. We don't get to see often. He's confused. He's scared. He's unsure. He even gets downright scary by the end. It made me realize that, I mean, we we as a human species are very reactionary based on our emotions. You know, we're not always ourselves when we're put to the end of our ropes. We really can lose a sense of ourselves when we are pushed too far. I've luckily never had to be pushed that far in my life. I've definitely had some scary moments in my life where looking back, the fight or flight or freeze response did definitely come in. I'm using this reflection to remind myself this week that it's important to, as much as we can, think before we act and avoid reacting based purely on emotion, because sometimes that could lead you to making some poor decisions. And you, my dear... I feel like I have to start by just kind of situating us in time. So we're watching and dissecting this episode basically after two full years almost of pandemic with no clear end in sight at this point. And in Quebec, where you and I live, which is a Canadian province, there was basically a months long lockdown in 2020. And a lot of people to this day are still working from home. We're sort of technically on lockdown again. A lot of people are just not going out a lot. And the routine and the inescapability of that has really been hard, for me anyway. It it just feels like every day kind of melts into the previous one and the next one, and it feels like time has lost this granular feeling. And like the last two years have felt like one really long month of just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And basically kind of like Sam in this episode. So my personal call to action is to try to make every day enjoyable, despite all the things I can't control, and that's a lot of them and a lot of really big ones, but to intentionally inject like little moments of joy into my day so that each day has a little bit of something that I love. No, it's very important to just, you know, reflect on a day and You know, not every day is going to be magical, but when you can make it magical, it's just that much better. Shall we listen to what our community has to say this week? This week, we're going to listen to the second half of Lucien's message. Now, I could talk about John for hours, but I think us collectively as a fandom have probably, you know, beaten that horse quite literally to death. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about Mary. Also because around this episode we find out that all her friends are dead and that uh, she is, again, another parent on the show whose representation I actually really loved. And so we're starting to like look into Mary's past a little bit more and find out a bit more about her character. Now, this is a really controversial take and there's lots of opinions and debate about Mary in the fandom, so I'll express my feelings on it. Mary is shown to be really cold and callous, not this mothering heavenly figure that Dean and Sam have been made to expect by John, uh, who has idolised her in her death. And I love that. 
Mary is a human being and a strong woman. She loves her children and pre-sealing mishap assumes this role of the loving wife and mother because that's what women do and that's what women feel like they have to do. We come to see that their marriage uh, had problems, uh, her and John's, and even before her death and that role that she assumed was done to protect Dean and Sam from her past and to fulfil a societal expectation that I think a lot of women uh, find that they have to fulfil. When we find out that that is not who she is and that she is indeed not particularly maternal in the conventional sense, she receives a lot of criticism from both the characters and the fandom. And I think this is because she isn't fulfilling our expectations of what good mothers should be. And I do think this is also um, misogynistic. Her existence is not defined by her children and she seeks an independent relationship rather than than like a codependent familial relationship that the brothers assume family should be because of their toxic and abusive upbringing and they react quite and they react quite poorly to Mary's rejection of a, like having a codependent relationship with them they are also adults and at times fail to realize that they are strangers to Mary who has essentially lost her children in the two or so seasons Mary was alive she describes herself as never feeling that she belongs that she exists mourning what she has lost and i think this is why her death was accepted not as the tragedy it might have been if she had always been alive I love her portrayal. Oh, yes. And like, I think that's one of the reasons why Dean did move on so quickly. Because I feel like she really wasn't written as though she had adjusted to the world of the living. She really felt like something wasn't quite right. And it kind of did remind me of this same idea that like we see in Harry Potter with the resurrection stone and how things that stay dead should really stay dead. Uh, not to uh, quote that hypocritical supernatural line. (laughs) I love her portrayal and how she is a three-dimensional mother and it's one of the few female characters the show does really well. Mothers like Mary and Lisa are not defined purely by their children and they are allowed to thrive outside the nuclear family setting and are complicated and parenting is really hard and those pressures placed on mothers I think are really well demonstrated in the show by Lisa and Mary and particularly that episode um, with Lisa that we just uh, that you guys just did an episode on. Now I'd be missing one of our favorite mothers if I failed to mention Rowena. Unlike the other two, she is definitely an abusive mother towards Fergus. Um, But again, shockingly, the show does a really good job of showing her as a capable and independent woman. And we are given the opportunity to watch her soften and grow more empathetic and loving as she interacts with the Winchesters. I think her character is also super interesting because she talks about how her life was extremely difficult, hence her mistrust of others and how intensely she guards her emotions, particularly with Fergus, her son. And we see her full arc develop in a really natural and wonderful way into a massively powerful ally, um, the ultimate survivor. And she makes that beautiful speech to Dean and Cass about death and making things right with loved ones before it's too late, like her and Crowley, which I think is a really poignant reflection from her as somebody who probably regrets that particular like aspect of her motherhood as now she's grown post his death 
and I, it might have even taken his death for her to to confront those real like feelings that she had um because she's definitely a terrible mother but she is an incredible woman so it's interesting to see like such a well-rounded and three-dimensional character who fulfills that like I suppose characterization um so I'd love to hear your thoughts on these characters and keep doing what y'all are doing. It's wonderful and honestly the best part of my week listening to you guys. I love you so much. Lucien out. Lucien, thank you so much again for this. I mean, you know, you only sent it in, in one shot, but we decided to cut it in half. Hopefully that's okay with you. But I really like the thoughtfulness that you put into this second half, particularly your thoughts about Mary and Rowena, because... The fandom loves Rowena, loves her, absolutely loves her. But like you said, she's a terrible mother, right? And and I feel like people are able to differentiate that, to differentiate the mother from the woman. Whereas with Mary, I rarely see people who make that difference. It's like, oh, why do you why do you don't don't why do you not like this character? Because she was a terrible mother. Okay. And I mean that's a totally valid reason to dislike a character, right? Like, I'm not saying that people are wrong in their dislike of her, but then in the same breath, they're going to talk about how great Rowena is. And I'm like, well, she was a pretty terrible mother too. And in fact, she was downright abusive. She sold her child. Like, you know, this is, I wish, I wish our listeners could have seen the face that you made when I said those things. So, so I just find it interesting. I have a lot of thoughts about Mary, (laughs) some that are definitely very unpopular. And so let's, uh, let's hold off on these before before I go and piss everybody off. <laughs> I felt very cheerleadery listening to this one. Like I love hearing about these characters we're going to get to meet and how they are not two dimensional paper cutouts. The way Mary is kind of described by John and the boys, like even in getting to meet her ghost that one time, she really just feels like the platonic ideal of a good mom. Like, she could be a mannequin with, like, a roast chicken in her hands and would play the same role in the story so far. So the idea that, yes, I know we do get to know more about her. I kind of had this feeling she would show up a bit in the series in some form or another. Like, the rest of these characters, I don't know. But you have built them up in a way where I'm excited to meet them because they sound like they are fleshed out women, which is exciting. And I think that more stories need female characters not just female characters but female characters that can be mothers as well i feel like if i were to list out like some of the top female characters and i'm sure some of them are not like without their problems like i go to black widow from the marvel movies there's tons of issues with her she's still a fun character she still has some more identity than just being a woman at least but again a lot of problematic things to go with that as well but i can't think of many mothers that are like fleshed out more than just being has children is maternal. So I'm very excited to see them because I know them in real life (coughs) co-host, but I can't wait to see them on a show. When someone becomes a mother, a lot of the rest of their identity is erased by the people around them. It's something that I've definitely experienced in part because motherhood and parenthood is all encompassing right? Like your whole life is about keeping this tiny thing alive. There, there are reasons for it, but at the same time, like it's, it's reinforced very strongly, you know, 
of, uh, what, what about your children? What are your children going to think? Anyway, so there's, there's definitely some, some stuff there. One thing that I really appreciated that Lucien mentioned actually, because, and I want to, I really want to highlight that, that he seems to think that part of the reason why the relationship between Mary and the, and the brothers is difficult when she does come back is in part because of how John depicted her. And I just, I love that observation and I'm going to keep it in mind. With all that said, shall we head down to the crossroads? Yes. I would have liked, and I feel like this comes from Groundhog Day a little bit. I would have liked to have seen more of Sam living through those hundred days. Like, I know we get a lot of little ones, but I would have liked to have seen like one or two days where he just goes like really nuts or like does something over the top. Like I would have liked to have seen some more extremes to really paint the picture that he's like given up or he's trying crazy things or that he's just taking a freebie because he's like, I've already screwed this one up. And like even just like a five minute or like two minute montage of like some of the weirder things he's tried or like, you know, just going like absolute top to like just not getting out of bed, refusing to leave the bed, like strapping Dean to a chair. Like I would have loved to have seen some really crazy stuff. And I think it that's two minutes we could have taken away from the crazy end of episode. Super maniacal, Sam. Not to say that it was bad or like it, it, it could have been. I think it was perfect as it was. It was like a perfect ending. But I, I think we could have stolen two minutes of that and given it to a little more fun at the beginning to kind of help us build this loop a little more. You know what? You just inspired me. So we know that on this show, we have to be really careful what we wish for. But I think that if I really had to wish for a change in this episode, it would be to separate the two parts into separate episodes, to have a longer Groundhog Day episode and to have a longer serial killer Sam episode where we see him hunting. We see how dangerous he is. We see that he's not talking to people. You know, that, and that was the whole conversation too. Where is Ruby in all of this? You know, anyway, so I feel like I would have liked to see that. I, I do this to myself sometimes. I try to avoid looking at the length of the episode remaining because I like when an episode, like I thought it was going to end on being shot in the parking lot. Like I literally thought that was the end of the episode. And like, again, people were there watching this live. I legitimately was like, no, no, this can't be the end. And I had, had to go look and see how much time was left. But I really think being able to flesh that out into two full episodes would have been insanely good. I, I think so. Honestly, that's that's really where I would go with this. Because this, this episode is so good, I just need more of it. That's it. The only flaw with this episode was it was the length of a single episode. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Ficouhou, and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Lucien for his message. Send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. 
Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who... Have we done this already? <laughs>